If you have been at Cornerstone for any season of time, you know that there has been a premium placed on discipleship. In fact, I believe it is part of the historic and ongoing testimony of our church. And over the last year and a half, our elders have sought to keep us reminded of this by having our ministry pillars up front. And one of the pillars, which I'll draw your attention to, is progressing in evangelism and discipleship. These pillars are important because God's word says that they're essential to our spiritual growth. And there are even corresponding verses that help us to see this. We need uh, reminders to focus on that which is most important. Yet, I want to be a realist. I think it's possible that we can grow indifferent and we can hear messages week after week that provide similar or um, exhortations that perhaps we've heard in the past. And somehow we can begin to grow indifferent. We can begin to think that, well, I've heard this before, so this message must be for the person sitting next to me. Instead of having our own hearts challenged. We run the risk of familiarity breeding contempt. And our message today relates to us progressing in evangelism and discipleship. And some of it is going to be uh, information that you've perhaps heard before. Some it might be uh, brand new. And regardless of where you're at, it's important for us to see the singular focus and mission of the Lord Jesus Christ as he makes disciples. The title of our message is Our Lord's Unchanging Mission. What did this unchanging mission look like? How did the Lord make disciples so effectively? What actions might the Lord have us apply to our lives? And our ministries as we seek to fulfill the co-mission of making disciples. Our study today in Mark chapter 2 verses 13 through 17 will help provide answers to such questions. Let's read it together. I invite you to turn there if you're not there yet. Mark chapter 2 verses 13 through 17 from the New American Standard. It says this, And he, Jesus went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. As I briefly shared last week, the context of chapter 2 and going into the first part of chapter 3 is Jesus responding to his critics and he's defending his ministry. 
And what is truly inspiring is that nothing deterred our Lord from his unchanging mission of making disciples. His life and ministry to make disciples always remained consistent. How committed are you to your unchanging mission given from the Lord to make disciples? Are we making progress or are we remaining the same? And our passage provides some insights that include three ongoing actions within the Lord's unchanging mission that are foundational for us to grasp. If we boil the actions down to, the, to, to their finest uh, level, Jesus did three things. He teaches, he leads, and he corrects. And let's get started with this first ongoing action. Our Lord continuously teaches the word to his followers. Notice again verse 13 which says, And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Jesus continually sought sinners. And our verse says he went out by the seashore, which literally means he went forth again by the seaside. And he was outside of Capernaum. He was at the Sea of Galilee, which we've talked about was more of a lake, um, not, not necessarily a sea, about uh, 13 miles long and seven miles wide. And there were many port towns on its bank. And it's here where Jesus began his gospel preaching ministry back in Mark chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And it's from here where Jesus called the first disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And Jesus, you may recall, was temporarily restricted from going into the major populated cities because of the disobedient leper that we studied who compromised the instructions that the Lord had given him. And so as a result, Jesus was limited to where he could go. And it seems that the lakeside was a good fishing spot for disciples and a place that those who were also inquiring as they heard about Jesus could go seek him out to hear him teach. Sinners were attracted to Jesus, and we've seen a couple examples as to why. Many were drawn to witness the miracles, and they sought healing, or in some instances, they sought food, which we'll learn about later, but they had no desire or no interest in spiritual lessons. There were, however, other sinners who came to see the Lord, to hear him teach, who were convicted of their sins and had hearts that were converted by genuine faith in Christ. And this was the case of the paralytic that we got a chance to study last week. His faith was real. He was physically healed, but he was spiritually cleansed. Regardless of their motives, Jesus' mission was unchanged, and he continued teaching them. What did he teach them specifically? Well, our verse doesn't reveal the content of his teaching. Yet, if we look at the broader context of Mark and what we've covered so far, it helps us. We know that Jesus put a priority and a premium on preaching the good news and encouraging people to repent of their unbelief as he started his preaching ministry in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus also helped us understand that 
the, the word is he, he continued to teach the word and help people to progress in their faith. He used the full, con- uh, the, the full context of, of launching with the gospel to help people see their need for change. And that's how the word functions for us today. Jesus put a priority on the gospel. There must be saving faith and a genuine change of heart internally before anything else. And this is opposite of what many of the scribes and the Pharisees understood as they changed their clothes, as they changed their behaviors without their hearts converted. It was completely backwards, and it opens the door to their legalism and their self-righteousness, which Jesus is going to address as we progress in our passage. For those who did come to faith in Christ, we know from our study last week in Mark 2, 2, that Jesus was speaking the word to them. Our Lord would deepen their understanding of messages that they heard and now working in conjunction with a converted heart, working in conjunction with sincere motives. He would address the people who had a love for God and a desire to obey him. There's a strong emphasis on the gospel and then there was a strong emphasis on the full counsel of the word as he taught. And again, we see teaching as a primary disciple-making action flow out of Christ's ministry from the very beginning. Our Lord taught them the gospel and he taught them the word. And you've heard it said and it bears repeating that to be a disciple maker, you must learn to become a teacher. Every single Christian on the planet in a disciple making context is called to be a teacher. Every single one, without exception, called to be a teacher. What do you teach? Well, if we're going to follow our rabbi and our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, we're also going to major on the gospel of faith and repentance along with the instruction that helps people live out their faith and repentance provided in the full counsel of God's word. When you teach and disciple someone, you can teach them how living the gospel out in your life and how your growth and understanding of the word is impacting your life and walk. And the point is this, we have to be intentional about our teaching. We, I, I think there's a fear sometimes of teaching. I think it goes all the way back to even those of us who were in school and you had to get up and you actually had to do a book review or you had to give a presentation on something and teach the class something you learned. Is anyone else that had that experience of being uh, fearful and, and here's the point spiritually, that we can't run from those opportunities. The Lord Jesus Christ wants us to run to those opportunities. Maybe in some ways you, you would even feel inadequate, along with being nervous. That's good. That's good, my friend. It will keep you dependent upon the Lord. It will also make you seek out counsel and, and additional discipleship to get answers that you don't know. And you're going to grow in the process. Others are there to help too. And so as I was thinking about this and just trying to be as practical as, as we can, 
to really, to, to, to really have this, as far as us being teachers, those of you working in a secular environment, are you willing to make a connection with a coworker and go in a little bit early or maybe stay a little bit after work to teach someone the truths about the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to invest in them and, and teach them the defining aspects of the gospel, which, again, it blesses us so, so much as we nail down those truths, even in, in our life. And I think about just, just Christ being nailed to the cross and those truths being piercing to our hearts and being nailed down in our lives. It blesses and it benefits us as we teach other people Students, and I always tend to look this way when I think of the students, even though I know there are some on this side too, all right? But when you got the Danilos over here, the whole crew is there, so naturally look that way. Are you willing to start a Bible study with a classmate and a friend? And I realize school is not in session right now, so no class. That means even more time. Even more time. Are you, are, are you willing to, um, to pick a friend and pick a proverb and just talk about it? It's that easy. It is that easy. We're living in a time right now where discipleship is... It, there's, there's never been a time like this in history where, where if you don't even feel adequate about teaching somebody that you can actually get together with a friend and you can just pull up the, the podcast of one of your favorite teachers and you can just listen to Alistair Begg or John MacArthur or any number of gifted teachers that are available, you can just listen and you can learn together and you can talk about what you're learning are you willing to do that? And as I already mentioned, this summer, you know, we're, we're taking a, a break from care groups, but we're going to have the Bible study right here at the church. There's another opportunity for you to spiritually invest in someone, make a commitment to 1 Thessalonians, bring somebody along that you want to invest. Get the main substance of the teaching on a Thursday night and use that as an opportunity to build on and invest in their lives afterwards. Parents, are we being faithful to the spiritual instruction that the Lord would have us invest in our kids' lives? Are we asking our young people over in children's ministries what they're learning on Sunday? And are we using that as a foundation to build upon? And those who have students in root, are you inquiring about what's being taught and what they're learning and how you can continue to teach them and instruct their understanding. I just had a conversation with R.E. about how, how wonderful it would be just to have whatever the Sunday school lessons are printed in our, our bulletin, just with a few questions for parents who sometimes don't even, don't even know. I need the reminder. Sometimes I'm not even inquiring, like, I don't know what Lydia learned. But that's an opportunity 
That's a, a, a prime opportunity. So Art's going to do that. He said he would love to serve our church in that way, provide some questions that the parents can ask with the, with the corresponding lessons. We have to take advantage of the opportunities. I know that many of you do. Many of you, you know, listening to Seed's family worship and the, the, the verse is being sung and maybe your son or daughter asks, you know, what, what does it mean to be anxious about anything? What, what, what does it mean? Teaching opportunities there as well. Are you actively engaged in what's being taught to your kids through media and through their friends? Are there spiritual lessons and gospel connections being made to what is taking place in their lives? Featuring repentance. Featuring why we don't want to go that direction. Why we don't want to believe that truth or, or that pseudo or false truth that's being proclaimed by the world. Fathers, today is a special day. Thankful for you for your provision and protection of your families. And so my inclination is just to take it easy on you guys a little bit today. But I think just even, even hearing the song that we've heard and just even being reminded, it's good, it's healthy for us. Are you leading by example in discipleship? I'll leave you with that question. Are you leading by example in discipleship? And this is a perfect transition to our next point as we shift attention to the second ongoing action within our Lord's unchanging mission of making disciples that helps us make disciples. First, our Lord continuously teaches the word to his followers. Second, our Lord continuously leads his followers by his example. Look at verse 14. It says, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And at the heart of discipleship, what it means to even be a disciple, mathetes in the Greek, it means to, it, you're a follower and a learner. To be a disciple of Christ is to be a follower of Christ and a learner of Christ. And the first ongoing action saw us see the importance of learning. And Christ continually teaches us. His disciples are continuously learning. There's always progress that's taking place in their discipleship. The other aspect of true discipleship is to be a follower of Christ. As a person follows Christ, they're able to learn from his example. And as they follow other people who are following Christ, it's the same thing that we see Paul share in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, when he exhorts us to follow him as he follows Christ. This Greek word that Mark uses here in verse 14, to follow me, it's very unique. Very unique. One theologian shares, it is only used in the gospel accounts of Jesus' disciples, never of those who oppose him. Occurring 19 times in Mark, this word translated follow is a load-bearing term that describes the proper response of faith and is practically synonymous with faith. Following is an act that involves risk and cost. 
It is something one does, not simply what one thinks or believes, end quote. A weighty term. And we get this, those of us who follow Christ, we, we know that it does come at a cost. And for young people, it's important for you to see this, that it will cost you friends in the world. It may even cost you family members. It may cost you your job, your reputation as the party guy, as the fun guy to be around, right? It may cost you future ambitions. In other countries, it costs you your life. It can cost you your life. And Levi, in our story, happens to be a tax collector, and so he would have been very wealthy. And so it was going to cost him dearly. It was going to hit him right in the pocketbook, right from the very beginning. And tax collectors during this time period, they weren't like IRS agents today who were salaried, who basically had the same amount of money coming in. There was a great deal of corruption then. And the Romans fixed land and pull taxes on trade routes to get a percentage of nearly all that took place commercially in trade in the outside regions. One commentator shares, travelers arriving in Capernaum from the territory of Herod Philip and the Decapolis to the east and north would be taxed by agents such as Levi, who would be sitting there in a booth. And they were in the service of Herod Antipas, tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. And the Roman tax system was complex and varied, even in a small country like Palestine. Land and poll taxes were collected directly by the Romans, but taxes on transported goods were contracted out to local collectors, most of whom were ethnic Jews, but probably not observant Jews, since Torah-conscious Jews could not be expected to transact business with Gentiles. So, Levi is here serving as one of these middlemen. And it makes sense that they contracted this out because even as it related to the language and the, com- the communication, right, they could, they, they, they could put it on. And so uh, Rome always got their share. And then the way that the tax collectors would make their money, it would be by making whatever they could and raising the bar on the taxes. And sometimes it was extortion to the greatest proportions. The Roman system of taxation, he says, depended on graft and greed, and it attracted enterprising individuals who were not adverse to such means. And this helps us understand a little bit more why tax collectors were so hated and despised. And I was trying to, you know, think of an illustration. You know, I thought of, you know, just even mob bosses and you know, corrupt attorneys. I was like, there's something where, you know, where you get taken advantage of something and it's something that you already own, right? Property, but then they're going to tax you to make money on it. And the example that came to mind was um, if you've ever had your car towed and impounded, they'll actually charge you four or $500 for the tow. And then they'll go ahead and they'll impound your car. And then they'll charge this outrageous amount of money until you come and pay that money. How do I know? I had it happen in college. <laughs> and it was really expensive. And I didn't have the money. So my car is sitting in, in the impound lot. 
And every day that passes, it's just cha-ching, cha-ching. And I'm going in there, and I was like trying to just even get my school books out of my car. They wouldn't even let me have access to the car. I was like, no way. Anyone else ever had that experience? Oh, my goodness. It, it, it literally makes you sick to your stomach what they're doing to you. It does. And I was thinking about this. There's a real reason why those um, clerks work behind bulletproof glass across the nation, right? They put bulletproof glass in because people just, they're hated. They're despised for their corruption. And tax collectors were viewed a dozen times worse in Palestine. Some of the rabbinical writings in the Mishnah and the Talmud, I mean, there's just scathing judgments that come out and they actually associate them with murder, murderers and thieves. One commentator shares, a Jew who collected taxes was disqualified to be a witness in court, expelled from the synagogue, and a cause of disgrace to his family. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Jews were forbidden to receive money and even alms from tax collectors since revenue from taxes was deemed robbery. Jewish contempt of tax collectors is epitomized in the ruling that Jews could lie to tax collectors with impunity. Wow. How bad was it? It was, it was even permissible for you just to go ahead and lie to tax collectors from their standpoint. And yet, here's where it should rock our worlds as we can be certain that it rocked the world of the disciples. Jesus calls this man, Levi, to follow me. Jesus was willing to lead and disciple this man. And he's literally viewed as the scum of the earth. He is literally viewed as worthless, wretched by everyone that would know him. Maybe the only exception being other tax collectors and people who are caught up in similar corruption. This is a powerful testimony of the grace of God through the gospel, is it not? It is powerful. And the disciples are learning so much from the Lord, and we've seen, we've got to see so much. I hope you've been blessed by it. Just as they watch Jesus Christ minister with compassion, as after teaching all morning at the synagogue and then going back and finding Peter's mother-in-law sick and having to heal her and, and then it's the Sabbath and then all of a sudden the entire city shows up in the evening to be healed and he ministers to them. And then we get to study the account that he's willing to do the unthinkable and he touches a leper. In that same heart of compassion he ministered as he uh, uh, met the needs of the paralytic that we got to study last week. The suffering servant ministers with such compassion. But now he summons even a tax collector to follow him? This is just absurd from an ancient Near East cultural perspective. 
And just to make sure his willingness to extend the grace of the gospel and to associate with the lowly was not misunderstood, he goes back to Levi's house to minister to even more tax collectors. Look at verse 15. And it happened that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in Levi's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them. What's your verse say? And they were following him. Wow. They were following him. And you guys remember what I just shared moments ago about the Mishnah and the Talmud and the rabbinical writings. They wouldn't have even um, allowed a tax collector to touch their house, let alone consider... I mean, it's, it's totally off the radar that they would ever even step near their home let alone go into it. And yet Jesus goes in and he reclines. And this was absolutely unthinkable. I think it's, I mean, it even goes beyond Jesus touching a leper. It's, this is, this is dozens and dozens of times worse according to their perspective And again, our Lord was willing to lead and disciple Levi despite. Listen to this story. Centuries ago, a number of workmen were seen dragging a great marble block into the city of Florence, Italy. It had come from the famous marble quarries of Carrara and was intended to be made into a statue of a great Old Testament prophet. But it contained imperfections. And when the great sculptor Donatello saw it, he refused it at once. So there it lay in the cathedral yard, a useless block. One day, another sculptor caught sight of the flawed block. But as he examined it, there rose in his mind something of immense beauty, and he resolved to sculpt it. For two years, the artist worked feverishly feverishly on the work of art. Finally, on January 25th, 1504, the greatest artist of the day assembled to see what he had made of the despised and rejected block. Among them were Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci, and even the great teacher of Raphael. As the veil dropped to the floor, the statue was met with a chorus of praise. It was a masterpiece. The succeeding centuries have confirmed that judgment. Michelangelo's David is one of the greatest works of art the world has ever known. Christ looked beyond the flawed life of Levi, the tax collector, to see what no one else could see. What would become of Levi? He would become one of the strongest evangelists to the Jewish population in the first century church. And after his name change, he would become known simply as Matthew meaning gift of the Lord. That's right. Matthew, the same human agent that was used to record the first gospel account that you and I have in our scriptures. 
This serves as an example of what following in discipleship can lead to in your life or in the life of someone you are discipling. You might be the next Uh, the next needed missionary to reach an indigenous people group that no one has been able to reach yet before because somebody disciples you to that. The Lord might use you to disciple someone to be the next John MacArthur who just turned 76 this last week who's approaching the end of his life who will be the next faithful man of God to stand up and to be the voice of truth in the church. The next Marcus Denny on the mission field. But in order for it to happen, my friends, it it, it involves us going back to, to leading, to leading people leading Christians to maturity. And you know, it may just be as simple as getting somebody to attend worship service on Sundays and leading them so that in time you can establish a relationship that leads to you praying together and leads to you having an opportunity to get them plugged in into service in the church. Leading them eventually to make another disciple And here in Mark 2, 14 and 15, Jesus is leading many others known simply as tax collectors and sinners along with his five hand-picked disciples up to this point. He is leading them all by his example and his willingness to eat and drink with Levi and the other tax collectors. In Luke's account, it describes the scene this way in Luke 5, 29. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Like so many of us who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that moment of salvation, you're on fire for the Lord. You can't wait to share the good news with family and friends. Your only, your only hope is that they would see it as joyfully as you do and that they would be impacted by your witness. And this appears to be the case of what Levi was trying to do. He wants to honor Jesus, and throw, so he throws a banquet feast for his new Lord and Master. It would be a great story if it just ended right here. But it doesn't. Our Lord's third ongoing action in his unchanging mission is seen in our final two verses. Our Lord continues correcting his critics' errors. And we see the scribe's criticizing question in verse 16, followed by our Lord's clarifying response. Look at verse 16. It says, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he, Jesus, was eating with the sinners and tax collectors... They said to his disciples, notice this, they don't even have the courage to speak to the Lord. They said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Critics typically always follow the same progression. They do, and this is true in life. They usually begin by questioning, then they move to complaining, and then it moves to what? conspiring. That's the progression. Question, why is so-and-so doing that? 
I don't think that they should be doing that. That's it. That blah, 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 blah. And then let's do something about it. Let, he needs to be out. Let's, let's get him out of here. What are we going to do? And this is the progression that you're going to see right through chapter 2. As they're, they're beginning, they're questioning before last week, who has the authority to, he doesn't have the authority to forgive sins. And they're calling into question here. They're questioning again today. And in Luke's account, it even mentions the word complaining. And then by the time we get to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we're going to see it evolve to a plot to destroy Jesus. That's where it moves. From the Pharisees' perspective, it was unforgivable. It was an unforgivable disgrace for Jesus, who claimed to be a teacher of the law, to associate with this class of people and disregard their Pharisaical customs. Their religious pride blinded them to the spiritual needs of others. And what's ironic is that it blinded them to their their greatest spiritual need as well. And I think most of us, when we see the pride of the Pharisees and we read about it in the scriptures, we're repulsed by it. But listen to what one commentator shared that offers some practical guidance for our own hearts. Perhaps none of us espouse such pharisaical beliefs. In fact, we loathe them. But many of us live them out nevertheless. We come to Christ and in our desire to be godly, we seek out people like us. Ultimately, we arrange our lives so that we are with non-believers as little as possible. We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian. We go to Sunday school that is 100% Christian. Prayer meetings that are 100% Christian. We play tennis with Christians, eat dinner with Christians. We have Christian doctors, Christian dentists, Christian plumbers, Christian veterinarians. And jokingly, he says, and even our dogs are Christian. The result is we pass by hundreds without ever noticing them or positively influencing them for Christ. None of us are Pharisees philosophically, but we may be practically. And so here Christ is correcting his critics. But maybe there's some heart correction for us too. Do we suffer from Christian tunnel vision, losing sight of those around us who need to be taught and led just as Levi? We carry with us preconceived notions about who is worthy of God's grace and who is not. How can we correct and prevent such prideful and pharisaical thinking from entering our hearts. Our Lord's clarifying response in verse 17 can help. It says, And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And here Jesus provides an illustration of everyone's need for the grace of God through the gospel by sharing proverbial wisdom that would have been well-known during the day. And it's well-known during our day. It's a common-sense answer that serves as a rebuke to their elevated pride and wisdom and enlightenment that nobody else seemed to have. 
this attempt to help them see just how misguided they truly are. And again, it's another physical reality that our Lord uses to teach a spiritual lesson. For Jesus to refuse to associate with sinners would have been as foolish as for a doctor not to associate with the sick, is how one Puritan author explains it. As the physician of souls, he was deeply conscious of the disease gripping those with whom he ate, yet he was seeking to carry out his mission as their healer and spiritual physician. Second, Christ completed his correction with a statement of his overall purpose and unchanging mission. He also condemns their self-righteousness when he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And he's clearly hoping his correction would penetrate their hardness. The Pharisees were just as needy as the publicans and sinners, but tragically, they did not know it. And Jesus was saying, in effect, to people who think they are righteous, I have nothing to say. I got nothing to say. But to those who know they have a need, guess what? I've come for you. I can minister to you. I can, we, we can work together. I can help you. Jesus displays a heart of compassion for the Jews who attempted, very, very common, to carry the yoke of self-righteousness. And ironically, the man to record his words was none other than Levi, who would become known as Matthew himself. In Matthew chapter 18, excuse me, Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The person who says, I have no need, who says there's no significant sin in me, is beyond God's help. And really beyond our help, too. All we can do is wait. Sooner or later, the burden of this life and their desire to walk around and be self-righteous and to carry that weight and to elevate themselves above other people, it will become too much to carry. Their dreams will collapse at their feet. And then they'll know their need. And that's our prayer. And that's what our prayer should be for them, that they would know their need you know what? That is why God so often allows somebody's world to be turned upside down. Why? Because they don't see their need. And when they see their need, then what can he do? He, he can turn it right side up. He can, he can do that shift. He can help them see with clarity. Sometimes he has to strip away the terrible delusion they can make it by themselves and thus see their desperate, desperate need for his grace. And I was thinking about this. Self, self-righteousness always looks horizontally, doesn't it? It always looks to the left and to the right, and it, it's always comparing. And God's righteousness causes us to look vertically. 
Self-righteousness pushes down and suppresses others and to, to, to make yourself feel good. You know, that's why they say people even watch um, talk shows and people who are having hard lives because it makes them feel good because they can elevate themselves. You can stack people up and stand on them in self-righteousness and look down and say, oh, at least I'm not like that. At least I'm not trailer trash. But God's righteousness pushes self down and it helps us to see our desperate need for his grace and the perfect righteousness that can only be obtained through the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-righteousness views others with contempt just like is on display for us to see in the account today while God's righteousness, you know what God's righteousness does? God's righteousness invades a church that is sitting and having a Bible study that has a young man who comes in strapped with a gun and starts blowing people away, killing people that they love and care for. And you know what God's righteousness has the power to do? Not to view that young man with contempt, but to say, you know what? There's a willingness. I want to forgive you. And I want you to repent. I want you to believe. I want you to trust in Christ. Was anyone else just blown away by the power of that testimony? That's God's righteousness on display to forgive in hopes that this young kid would repent and believe, and maybe even in your own heart. I know initially when I heard the news and going into a church, we want to hold him in contempt. What? Are you kidding me? Needs Christ. Needs Christ. And the Bible couldn't be any more clear than it is in Romans 3.10. There are none righteous. Not even one the playing field is leveled when it comes to spiritual righteousness. And nobody outside of Christ will ever be good enough to stand on their own merits or self-righteousness in God's presence. We need Christ. We cling to Christ. I was thinking about the reality of, of pursuing self-righteousness. It's like a dog chasing his own tail. It's an empty pursuit. And in the dog's mind, he thinks he's traveling this great distance to get what he wants. And he thinks he's making great progress. But in the end, how far did he go? So it is with pride and self-righteousness. It's an empty pursuit that according to God's plan will get you nowhere. So, now that our time is up, what can we learn from Christ's correction in this instance? Let me offer three things. First, that by focusing on Christ's perfect righteousness, help us steer clear of the danger of any and all forms of imperfect self-righteousness. That we would be like the Apostle Paul and that we would say, I am what I am by the grace of God. Second, Christ and his followers did not isolate themselves from a needy world. And therefore, nor should we. 
They went out with Christ and embraced his unchanging mission to make disciples. The Christian's life is not to be one of isolation, but one of mission. And it starts with submission. It starts coming underneath God's purpose. And then it connects us to the co-mission. To go in with his authority as his ambassadors, in his strength and in his power to make disciples. Third takeaway for us, Jesus sat down and sits down with sinners. He dined with them and ministered to them. And he helped them to see their need to repent of their unbelief and to trust in him completely by faith. May we exercise wisdom as we seek to teach others, to lead others, and correct others for Christ and his glory. Please pray with me. Father, as we close our time and transition to our time of communion, we want to thank you again for allowing this account to do its work on us spiritually. We know that we are who we are by your grace and nothing more and nothing less. Thank you for the reality that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear the, the message of the good news. That you have brought us to a place where we repent of our unbelief that you've led us to the place of repentance of any self-righteousness that we would try to assert that would somehow deem us worthy to stand in your presence when it could never happen. It could never happen. In your mercy, you've allowed us to see and be born again, to have our hearts changed. And Father, we'll be the first to confess, I'll be the first to confess that self-righteousness does want to creep back in. The flesh does want to assert itself. In our pride, we do want to consider ourselves better than others. And may the reminder from your scripture challenge our hearts. Romans 12.2, not to think, 12.3, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment. And Father, we just ask now as we prepare our hearts for communion, how appropriate, how fitting it is to think about your perfect righteousness that could never be attained. We pray, Father, that you'll bless us now as we enjoy this ordinance together as a church family. We thank you again for the ministry of your word. We ask that you'll continue to grow us, help us to be effective teachers, leaders, and even correctors for your name's sake and for your glory. We look forward to seeing how you answer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.